Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Welcome back to HBO's Band of Brothers podcast. This is Roger Bennett. I say Flash, you say Thunder. Episode 2, Day of Days. The episode retells a story of Operation Overlord. The Allied invasion of Nazi-controlled Western Europe begins on the 6th of June 1944, a day on which, and it's hard to say this without it coming off as hyperbole, The future of the free world hinged. But that's the truth. These are the stakes this episode confronts. Easy Company's mission was to land behind the Germans' first line of defence, to secure the causeways beyond the beaches of Normandy, allowing men and supplies to roll on into the French countryside. If episode one, Curahi, is a show letting us know that this story is going to take us on a journey across Europe, and that we're going to follow this cast of characters. Day of Days is the series warning us, as we do become emotionally invested in each individual, we're going to lose many along the way. That, and two more truths. That everyone wants a Luger, especially Malarkey, and non-fatal wounds tend to be shots in the ass. Where you hit, Pop? I can't believe I fucked up my ass, sir! Your ass? Above all, This episode, which at 49 minutes is the shortest in the entire series, really brings to life the emotion Stephen Ambrose articulates in his book when he wrote, Getting shot and shooting to kill produce extraordinary emotional reactions. No matter how hard you train, nor however realistic the training, no one can ever be fully prepared for the insanity of the real thing. My guest today is a remarkable gent, a man who became a television writer as a mid-career switch and, prepare to be blown away listeners, not only landed his first proper writing gig on Band of Brothers, but in crafting episode 2, Day of Days, and episode 9, Why We Fight, in his words, quote, kind of had to write Saving Private Ryan and then Schindler's List back to back. Spoiler alert, we know he was up to the task and then some, and it's a joy to welcome Mr. John Orloff. Why, thank you. It's it's exciting to be here. And wow, that might be the greatest introduction I've ever had in my life. No question. You deserve that every single morning for what you've given to the world, Mr. John Orloff. But let's go back to the start, John. You are a fourth generation film business gent. Your great-grandparents the radio comedy legends Fibber and McGee 
We're a staple on Network NBC, roughly listeners like a 1940s friends, Ross and Rachel. But you decided to carry on in the family business. You went to UCLA Film School. But when you graduated, you had the self-awareness to realise you hadn't lived long enough to write anything. So you plummet into advertising. Meet your wife, Paige Smith-Orloff, who was then an HBO exec. She challenged you to write. Tell us that story, John, because when I hear that, I think everyone needs a muse like your wife. Right after film school at UCLA, I ended up working in advertising, making TV commercials. And when I met my wife, who was an executive, as you mentioned, at HBO, she would bring home writing samples from other writers because she would be thinking about hiring them. And at the time, HBO happened to make a lot of nonfiction films. And I thought I could do as good, maybe better. And so she encouraged me to write something that I believed in and something from my heart. I chose to write a 16th century Elizabethan melodrama. I love that 16th century melodramatic heart that lies within John Orloff <laughs> because it produced a screenplay called Soul of the Age. Very good. About Shakespeare. But this is right around the time Shakespeare in Love is smashing it at the Academy Awards. Best picture, best actress, best everything. And in doing so, it's kind of saturated the late 90s Shakespeare market. So your project DOA... <laughs> Which is already a small market. <laughs> yes, it's a, it's a big niche in a tiny niche. And to the extent that one agent who received it, I love this, actually called you. They took time out of their busy day to ask you, John Orloff, how dare you write this script? And I love this story because any young listeners will know they should never give up because you've said this agent was not just passing. He was passing with malice. He's still a big agent at the same company. And he took time out of his busy, busy day. Somebody I've never met in my life. I didn't even know he had read the script. And he calls me up to tell me how offended he was by the script. I mean, it was just insane. Another agent at the same agency read it. And he's been my agent ever since. The script made its way to the desk of Tom Hanks. It allows you to have a meeting. You, a self-proclaimed Second World War nut and Stephen Ambrose fanboy. And you took the opportunity to sell yourself as a writer for a project he's starting to develop. Band of Brothers, take us back into that room, how you first find out about the project and pitch yourself to Tom. There's this one guy, the guy that had read Soul of the Age first, who still works for Tom, named Kirk Sadusky. He's also a big World War II buff and history buff, and that's one of the reasons he liked Soul of the Age and then gave it to Tom. We talked a lot about World War II, and he brought it up to say, you know, hey, we're working on this project. It's really cool. And then I went in and met with Tom to talk about a whole other project, a film that never got made. And so we talked a little bit about that, and I think... Either in that meeting or the next meeting, I said, hey, I hear you're writing a World War II or, you know, creating a World War II miniseries. I'm a huge Ambrose fan, huge World War II nut, and I would just love to be part of it. And Tom said, yeah, that's great, but, you know, we're probably only going to have one writer, this guy, Eric Genderson, and da 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 and so sorry. And so we have another meeting or two about this other movie. What would the acts be and all that kind of stuff? Out of the blue, at the end of the meeting, he's like, hey! You still want to work on Band of Brothers? And I go, uh, yeah, sure. And he goes, well, great. You want to write the D-Day episode? <laughs> and I go, uh, okay. 
I need to rewind for one moment here, John Orloff. I need to know, how did you, a gent born in the mid-60s in Los Angeles, California, how did you become a Second World War nut in the first place? As you said, I'm fourth generation Hollywood. So my grandmother was a B-movie actress who's in The Big Sleep. My father was a commercial director in the 60s and 70s. I mean, like a very successful, every other commercial was made by his company. And so he was very wealthy, well, at least in a short-term way. (laughs) My parents were divorced and I would go every other weekend to his house and he had a screening room, like a proper 16 millimeter screening room with seats and a projector and a screen that came down and the whole nine yards. Oh, heaven. Heaven. He owned a couple hundred films on 16 millimeter. Now, this is like the early mid 70s where there's no VHS, there's no streaming. The only way you get to watch an old movie like Guns of Navarone or Patton or Paths of Glory or Run Silent, Run Deep. I mean, I could go on and on and on. The classics. You either had to just kind of find them on television on a Saturday morning, and that was kind of it. So my dad had a lot of these movies. So, you know, I really just got into it. And then as a kid, I played in uniform, pretending to fight Nazis. And I had at one point the Guns of Navarone figure guys in the mountain made by like Mattel or whoever made it in like 1970. (laughs) That's product placement before there was product placement. But uh, essentially, as a kid, you inhaled the cannon. So when Hank says... Do you want to write episode two, Day of Days, the D-Day episode? Was that your version of making the Super Bowl as a QB in your rookie season? I mean, that is the stuff that dreams are made of. How did you feel when you walked out of that room? In shock and in awe and then terrified because he didn't just say, do you want to work on Band of Brothers, but do you want to do the D-Day episode? And this was maybe a year after Saving Private Ryan came out. Both the cultural impact that film had and the cinematic impact the D-Day scene specifically had as being called one of the greatest combat sequences ever now has to be duplicated. So I was terrified, absolutely terrified. Do you have... Imposter syndrome at all. I am projecting yeah. here. I won't be quite honest, John. Or are you like, you know what? I was born for this. No, 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 no. I was absolutely terrified. But at the same time, <laughs> I did think, well, I, I kind of know what I'm doing, both about the war and about screenwriting. And Tom Hanks seems to think I'm a decent enough writer, so they'll give me a shot. The stakes of every episode in this series, you have to get it right on an easy company's experience. To me, that could crush a writer. And this is not just any episode. This is the Allied invasion of Normandy, arguably the most important battle in the history of modern human conflict. So under the weight of that, how did you prepare? What were the first steps? Who did you speak with? How did you think through the thread, the narrative that you wanted to tell? So then I met Eric Jenderson, who had written the Bible that we sort of followed in terms of what happens in what episodes. The Band of Brothers Bible, which broke down the whole show structure. Eric had done all this amazing research. He had started to talk to the men. I think at that point, I talked to Dick Winters. He was the first guy I spoke to. And the first time we didn't meet, we only spoke on the telephone. My first few 
times talking to him. He stayed in Hershey and I was in L.A. Dick is an amazing, was an amazing man. I became friends with him and stayed friends with him until his illness. After I'd spoken with Dick, I realized, oh, that's the episode. You don't need to go beyond Dick Winters. If you can't make a guy dropping into Nazi-occupied France with nothing but a fucking trench knife, and by the end of the day, he has taken four 105-millimeter German cannons and saved hundreds, if not thousands, of lives on Utah Beach. If you can't make that dramatically interesting, then you need another job. So that was sort of one of my choices was to say, hey, rather than seeing all these other guys, let's just do Dick Winters, his point of view that day, and nothing else. And everybody was like, that's a great idea. Now, maybe it seems obvious in hindsight, but... That's not where we started. So we just sort of said, let's just tell that story. And if you got his blessing and he liked me, I clearly knew my stuff in terms of the war and talking to him in a way that he was comfortable with. He told all the other guys that I was okay. And he didn't go to the guys' reunions. So he never went to them. He went to maybe one or two over 50 years. But I did go to the next reunion, Easy Company reunion, which was in the summer of, I want to say, 98 in Denver, Colorado. So now I've gotten the papal blessing from Dick. So now I fly to Denver and walk in. And it's a big ballroom in the middle of Denver. You know, not the fanciest one you've ever seen. You know, those standard white tables with tablecloths. There's no food being served. There's no nothing. There is a table filled with jugs and jugs and jugs of every alcohol known to man. And it's serve yourself. There's just a bunch of old guys. Obviously, they're in their 70s. Some have brought some family members, but not a lot. Actually, not a lot at all. They were just huddled in separate tables, talking, drinking. This is before Band of Brothers has come out. So the guys were maybe less shy after Band of Brothers. But before Band of Brothers, these guys were all very, very private men who'd gone on and lived their lives, had families. And they were not a society that a generation, rather, that talked a lot about themselves. And so they wouldn't talk about their war service with anybody else but themselves. They didn't tell their wives about it. They didn't tell their kids about it. And so they would just get together. We would now call it like a therapy session, you know, like a group therapy session. But that's not what it was in any classical technical way. It was just a bunch of guys telling war stories, getting drunk together. But that's what they needed, you know. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. What did it feel like for you, a self-professed Second World War nut? on this project of a lifetime to be in that bar room with the actual heroes, just hearing them open up. It was amazing. It was electric. It was jaw dropping. 
And the more I talked to them, the more my jaw would drop. I just came from Ambrose's book. It's a whole nother thing to start talking and saying, well, what did you feel about? So I met all these guys, Malarkey, Compton, Lipton, Popeye Wynn, Garnier, Heffron. How can you forget Bill and Babe? I mean, those two guys could drink anybody under the table, anybody. <laughs> it was amazing yeah. the amount of liquor those two men could consume and have no effect. Unbelievable. I mean, listening to these stories, these liquor-soaked stories, these stories of trauma, of agony, of wonder, of pain, was it there in that room that you realised both what you needed to tell and what you were writing against, you needed to tell with authenticity rather than heroising it all? Spending any time with the guys themselves put an extraordinary extra onus on all of us to get it right. Because when you sat and you talked to them and they would share these stories, they were just mouth-droppingly amazing. The sacrifices, because again, before Saving Private Ryan in particular, and then Band of Brothers just a couple of years later, World War II wasn't shown in this really graphic, intense emotionally, how war affects people, not just in the positive. None of those things were explored in Patton or Guns of Navarone, these films I did indeed love, but they were made in the 1960s and the early 1970s. And by then, World War II movies were totally out of fashion until Saving Private Ryan. So what these stories were was changing. It wasn't just John Wayne taking a hill. There were also 17 other guys who died so John Wayne could take that hill. And let's talk about that story. And these were those guys. It's hard to sit down at a table with Carwood Lipton, who had the most intense, sparkly blue eyes, and not be captivated by his storytelling. Or Malarkey, you know, he's Irish. He was really emotional. He cried a lot, but he also told some really intense stories. They were so ingrained in his memory. It was like it was yesterday and he had an emotional reaction. Now, he probably hadn't told these stories to very many people other than the people that were in that room. So he was probably telling somebody outside that small circle some of these stories for the very first time in his life. He probably never went to a therapist. He probably never told these stories to his wife. It was intense. It was super intense. And then you've been given as a writer, as a dramatist, this stuff, and you have to present it as honestly and as correctly as you can. How I wrote it is pretty much what we understood happened. Is there drama to it? Well, yeah, there's a little bit of conflict between Garnier and Winters, but there really was that night. That's not a lie. So I just built off of it. Everybody who worked on the show, though, not just the writers, but it did start with us. We took the responsibility of telling these men's stories as well and as accurately as we could. Yes, we made mistakes. I want to remind everybody it was before the Internet and you couldn't check some of the stuff. One of the vets told us something. We tended to believe it. And since we've learned that their memories weren't always perfect. And, for example, Albert Blythe did not die right after the war, as it says at the end of Carrington. But we didn't know that. The guys thought he did. Let's dive into episode two. From the very beginning, we find Easy Company, who we've lived with and come to know through basic training. At long last, it's their moment. They are packed into C-47s. 
on the precipice of making the jump that they've been preparing for since Camp Tekoa. The scripting. John, your scripting is a study in economy of language. It speaks volumes with just a dusting of dialogue. What did that sequence look like on paper when you first wrote it? It was trying to capture unspoken the terror of battle as they're about to go into and the apprehension of battle and the nervousness and what these guys were feeling and how to show that in different people and different characters and introduce our characters for this episode at the same time because they were mostly from Winter's Stick and mostly end up at Braycore. And so we're doing multiple things at once, showing the men's nerves. We're saying, hey, look at these guys. And then the first thing we really hear is the radio guy over the C-47, another pilot in combat. We got a paratrooper on the wing. I repeat, we got a paratrooper on the wing. Then you start to hear the battle. Like thunder. All that was scripted and was meant to suck us in with the guys. Then we zoom into Dick's C-47. You know, when we do that, we almost never leave him again. Then it's time for the 101st Airborne to jump. In Stephen Ambrose's words in the Band of Brothers book, thus did 13,400 of America's finest youth who'd been training for the moment for two years hurl themselves against Hitler's fortress Europe. We begin to follow Dick Winters as he drifts through the sky, down to the fire-strewn ground below. And the first soldier he encounters is Private Hall from Able Company, 1st Division. Flash! Shit! I don't think that's the correct reply, Trooper. I say Flash, you say Thunder. Yes, sir! Thunder, sir! John, Private Hall only appears in this one episode, but... It's clear that he's shouldering a lot of the emotional side of the story. He's really our conduit. He's scared, lost, intimidated, eager. He has no idea who anybody is or what's going on. Can you talk about how you used him in this script as an emotional device? In my interviews with Winters, he remembered it. It was part of the story was this young man, Hall, is the first guy he met on D-Day. I didn't make up any of it. So this episode in particular was just don't fuck it up. Just don't get in the way of it. Thank God, John, you didn't. Because (laughs) we're all the better off for it. The men then experienced their first combat. The ambush of a horse-drawn transport, the slaughter of the horses. Really a fascinating creative decision to ease the viewer into warfare, but also signalling Hold on, brace yourself. This is all going to be much more brutal than you thought. Exactly. And again, it's what happened. It wasn't a wagon in actuality. That was the slight cinematic license taken. It was just some German soldiers marching, but we all thought it would be a little more interesting if we added the wagon and gave it a a dynamic sense to the scene. And then the horses was sort of the brutality of it, exactly as you said, that this is not going to be a simple, easy thing for these guys. Or for the viewers. Yeah, exactly. It's going to be hard. These guys did hard things and you're going to see them. And Dick was really pissed off about it. Enough, darn near! Next time I say wait for my command, you wait for my command, Sergeant. Yes, sir. That was the other thing 
that drove the story. Because you look for conflict in shows and in characters. And so obviously there's a conflict with the Nazis, but you need to personalize it. And that was a point that Winters told me he had a point of conflict with Garnier that he started shooting without waiting for his orders. And that is not something you did with Dick Winters. You did not disobey Dick's orders. And so I built off of that, both in the beginning of it. You see him? He just sat there. He didn't have a weapon. What's he going to do, shout at him? Shouts at me for killing Krauts. He just wanted you to wait for his command. Joe, he don't even drink. And then in the end, when he's talking about his religion. Oh, Sergeant? Sir? I'm not a Quaker. Even like Gaston County, he's probably a Mennonite. What's a Mennonite? Those are sort of me filling in those blanks. So there's a beginning, middle and end to that moment of conflict. Possibly one of the greatest moments of conflict between the men in the entire series then takes place. It begins with a tender exclamation point of a scene. Malarkey, God bless, bonding with a surrendered captive German soldier from Eugene, Oregon. A man born just 200 miles north of Malarkey's native Astoria, Oregon. His family had somehow decided to return to Hitler's Germany to fight for the fatherland. Yeah, so I was in plant in 39. <laughs> That's when I was at Monarch tooling propeller shafts. No kidding. What are the chances of that, huh? You and me, a hundred miles from each other, working to practically the same job. Jeez. Hey, Malark! We're waiting on you. Yeah, I'm coming. I gotta run. I'll see you around. Yeah. See you around. Your script, John, managed to fleetingly make them seem like just two kids from the Beaver State. They made us momentarily sympathise with the enemy. Well, you're always looking for those human moments, aren't you? The kid from Oregon was not in that actual group of men. Malarkey met that kid, I think, a couple days later. But again, to humanize that moment and to make us really feel something in that moment, I thought, well, maybe I'll combine it into one event. And sometimes you have to do that as a storyteller to get both of those stories in. Otherwise, if I hadn't made that choice, the only choice is he doesn't meet the kid from Oregon, or at least you never see it. So my choice is either you forget that story and it's never in the show, or we cheat it by a couple of days and combine it into this other event, making it that other event even more emotionally impactful and personal. Dramatically speaking, it's a twofer. The second half of that twofer, enter Spears with cigarette in mouth. And a Tommy gun slung across his shoulder. Malarkey's ordered back to the company. But Spears calmly offers the captured German prisoners cigarettes. Danke. But we only see Malarkey's horrified face from a distance. You intentionally leave the scene end ambiguous. Tom Hanks talked to us a lot about the real stories surrounding Spears. I want to get a sense of the discussions in the writer's room about how to write this scene, especially the idea to leave the end unclear. There was no writer's room on Band of Brothers. We all went off and did our own scripts and actually talked to each other very rarely. So much so when we were talking about Hall a little bit earlier, 
I had always hoped that in episode one, you would meet Hall because he actually did know Winters before the jump. He was on the basketball team, the 101st basketball team with Dick Winters. But I thought it would be better if we saw it in one. But there was no writer's room. So you didn't have these conversations. We all wrote our own episodes by ourselves. Like you write a movie. We were all feature writers. So there was no writer's room. I mean, literally, we never got in a room together, all of the writers. We had one meeting one time with Steven Spielberg. We didn't talk story at all. Steven was just looking at the model of Braycore Manor saying how cool it was going to be. It wasn't a writer's meeting or a writer's room. It was like, oh, wow, look at from this angle. Oh, if we shoot it over here, you can see this. And, you know, Spielberg being Spielberg. But my point is there was no writer's room. I finished my script. I gave it to Tom Hanks. That's what it was. So let me reframe the question. Take us Sorry. into the discussions <laughs> inside your own head, John yeah, Olaf, yeah, yeah. about yes, the decision exactly. to write this scene and leave the ending unclear. At that time, nobody would totally admit whether it was true or not. Dick just said, well, it was a rumor. And I think the other guys stuck to that story as well at that time. And then on the dramatic point... The Spears myth continued through the series. I mean, that just was who he was. And this story on D-Day was a rumor around the whole 101st. It really did go around, like, can you believe what Spears did? And the story did get bigger in the telling. And then obviously Spears did, a, you know, other interesting things during the war. So we all, well, I don't know, we all, I thought it would be more interesting if we didn't see it. If you were a betting man, John, knowing what, you know, what happened? Oh, he did it. Absolutely. I'm not a betting man. Dick Winters told me he did it. Spears was, uh, I, I don't know if uh, there are some stories maybe I shouldn't tell, but let's just say I absolutely uh, know that he, he did do it. And I don't make a moral judgment on it because it's, you know, they were supposedly ordered in a larger way by, there were rumors that they were supposed to do this. Remember, they're behind enemy lines. They have a mission to do. Their mission is to save the boys, the Americans that are coming on the beach. You can't set up a POW camp while you're trying to do that at the same time. So by their very nature, the men of Easy Company, they're behind enemy lines. What do you do with POWs? Now, does that mean he should have killed them? Uh, uh, no, but it's, it's, it's complicated. And you're also setting up a statement on leadership. We've met Sobel on one end of the spectrum. We've seen Dick Winters in action at the other end of the spectrum. And you're almost using Spears somewhere there in the grazing. Spears, it has, it's a great entrance, you know. Um, it's a great way to, 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 to reveal a character. And, and the the... I'm sorry, I'm, I'm I'm not stuttering so much as trying to express such a complicated relationship between Spears and Winters. They were so different as leaders, but very close to each other intellectually and as friends. Not the way Nixon and Winters were friends. It was it was a different relationship. It was more peer to peer, you know, leader to leader, with totally different leading styles and leading accomplishments. And yet I think most men, if not all the men under their command, would have done anything for either of them, even though they were so very different. The episode then pivots again, narrowing back to a study of Winters 
as he leads an assault on the guns at Breakout Manor. Another battle sequence in which we learn more about the characters to their actions rather than their words. How did he go about crafting the execution of this legendary engagement? This is an engagement which is now taught at West Point still as an example of how a small force can confuse and overwhelm a much bigger one. How did you approach the writing of this scene? When I started to interview specifically the Braycor Manor guys, so Compton was there, Garnier was there, Malarkey was there, Popeye was there, they all remembered it differently. They all had a whole different, not a whole different, but slightly different stories of what happened when on the attack, on the assault at Braycor. So that's one of the reasons why Ambrose's book has stuff wrong is because he might have taken this bit from that guy and that bit from this guy. But he didn't have to do it in three dimensions like I did. So I made a map when I started writing it to just get the geography in my own head. I included that map in the end of the script so people who could read it would understand it because it was a very technical script, very technical script, almost a shot for shot in the battle, you know, close on winters doing this cut to Lipton in the trees shooting. All of that stuff was laid out in the script in the right order because I was the one who did the interviewing and had to thread these seven or eight, nine different memories of the same event in a very Kurosawa, Rashomon way and just take it piece by piece by piece. You know, you have to compress time. It was really like a five or six hour battle. And again, just step out of the way of the truth. Toy really did get almost killed by two different hand grenades. Compton really did throw a grenade like a baseball because he was a baseball player and it exploded on impact. And Malarkey did go after a Luger in the middle of the battle. These things happened. It was literally just staying the fuck out of the way, laying it out in a way that was cohesive and understandable. So you'd have the big picture, the little picture, the big picture, you know, that it was all make sense. The geography. You're a very humble bloke, John Orloff, but that is the brilliance of this set piece that you made something that was in real life incredibly chaotic, but you gave it an order amongst the chaos. What's the secret to writing great battle sequences? Thank you. I really actually enjoy writing battle sequences. And I do think in all my work and stuff that's been produced and unproduced and to be produced, I know how to write a battle sequence. And I think it stems from actually this episode and laying it out in my head and visualizing it, almost storyboarding it. Because I knew it was such a big chunk of the episode. I knew it would be compared to Saving Private Ryan. I knew what it meant most importantly to Dick Winters, this moment in his life, and that we had to get it right. And it had to be cohesive. And you had to be able to follow it in a narrative structure, you know, gun by gun. The secret sauce, if I knew that, I guess I could give it to somebody else. It's just what I do. It's chessboard. I don't know. I just love it. When you look at it now, is there anything you would have done differently? Maybe written a little bit more so it would be a little longer. It's the shortest episode of the show. It's only 45 minutes, maybe even less. But that's really about it. We got so fortunate with everything. Richard Longcrane was amazing. The editor was amazing. 
The sound effects were amazing. The actors were just beyond amazing. The set decorating, my God. I went to the shoot of that episode and they had reproduced it so well. It was awe-inspiring. And then all of a sudden you see all these extras in their M42 jackets and walking around. And then you see, oh, wait, there are those other guys in there walking around in their Wehrmacht outfits with MG42s. A callback that I used to dress up in those uniforms. I would buy those uniforms when I was 10 or 9 from the Army Surplus Store, which they had in the 70s. And I would pretend I was one of those guys. So now I'm on a set watching one of those guys. It was pretty amazing. It was pretty amazing. <laughs> the episode ends. Dick Winters in voiceover. That night I took time to thank God for seeing me through that day of days and prayed I would make it through D plus one. And if somehow I managed to get home again, I promised God and myself that I would find a quiet piece of land someplace and spend the rest of my life in peace. Where do you get this from? Was this something that you wrote or was it a real letter? I knew that I was going to end with the words that he speaks at the end of the episodes from the second I knew I was going to write this episode and did any research at all. If I remember correctly, it was from a letter that Dick Winters wrote his girlfriend right after D-Day. Those were not his exact words verbatim in the beginning. It ends with his exact words, the rest of my life in peace. And he wrote that and wrote kind of the same idea in the preceding sentences. But I wrote that out, I don't know, 60 different ways, that final few sentences, always ending with the way Dick ended it, but different ways in and different ways to try to conclude the day because it's voiceover that was really rewritten all through post-production that soliloquy it's not really a soliloquy it's so short but that idea of winter's last thoughts that day critics are split as to whether this is almost a second ending the tanks rolling through the horse blood is so just symbolically powerful or whether there's a true beauty and poetry in it i actually I'm in the latter camp. To me, these lines are really bloody important. They almost set a foundation for the rest of the series. Well, first I would have to ask, who are these heathens who think it shouldn't be in the episode? I'd like to have a few words with them, but I guess this is my uh, opportunity. (laughs) I didn't know there were such people. Just stay off Reddit, John Olof. (laughs) (laughs) This was always about Dick Winters this day. And that was my original idea from the beginning was let's follow Dick Winters through this day, not just through the battle, through this 24 hours. It starts before the battle and it ends on the end of the day. It's day of days. I think it's one of the things that makes the episode special and 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 a little bit of a standout in the show. You know, it's it's only 24 hours, maybe even less. It's post-midnight when they come over and it's before midnight when they're in the Jeeps and the trucks. So it was always, what did this day mean for Dick Winters? It means nothing if it doesn't mean something to him. He's talking to Nixon about losing Hall. I lost a man today. Hall. Thanks. A John Hall, New Yorker. Got killed today at Braycor. I, I never knew him. Yeah, you did? Radio Op, 506 basketball team, Able Company. He's a good man. Man. 
not even old enough to buy a beer. There are real costs of leadership. And Dick found that out. It was, in some ways, the greatest day of his life because he accomplished what so few human beings could do. And it was the worst day possible because he had lost a young man with a future was gone. It was because Dick ordered him to go somewhere. He learned what this was going to be about. It was going to be about death and telling people to go die. When he makes that run, that charge on Braycore Manor, that's why he has to say, follow me! I wish that were the subtitle of the episode in some ways, you know, where he says, follow me. He wasn't going to order his men into a place he wouldn't go himself. And he was prepared to die. That said, having somebody die under your command is a very sobering experience. So that last scene with Nixon, where we're expressing the cost of this war and leading in it, and then him realizing all of this and that, you know what, I want to be done as soon as humanly possible, and then I don't want to ever do this again. John Olof, for a first script made, Day of Days is truly unbelievable, as is the story of your creative process writing it. It's a genuine honour to hear you sharing it with us. Thank you. Well, thank you. It's been my pleasure. For Band of Brothers, episode two, Day of Days, to be the first piece of work you ever have produced is just remarkable. And our next guest is a gent who helped John Orlos' vision of D-Day leap off the page and onto our television screens. A singularly creative man who cut his teeth developing a cinematic eye in the commercial industry before directing a critically revered version of Shakespeare's Richard III, featuring one of the best Ian McKellen performances of all time. I have to say, I also loved his movie Wimbledon, and the fact my guest is a true creative's creative, the sculptor of the first ever modern Newton's Cradle, Google it, listeners, it's so soothing. And also an Oscar winner for the invention of the remote camera head. It's an honour to interview the man who essentially directed the Allied invasion of Europe. It's Mr. Richard Longcrane. Hi, Roger. Nice to meet you. Thank you for having me on the show. It's much appreciated. And thank you for making up all those lies about me. It's very generous. (laughs) Unbelievably, they're all true, including the Newton's cradle. Afraid they are, yep. Richard, let's start with how you got this incredible role of Band of Brothers director in the first place. It's late 90s. You're a London-based commercial director back when commercials were really commercials. And your agent raises the idea of this project to you. Take us back to that meeting and what went through your head. I was probably a bit snotty about television at that time. We didn't have HBO in England, so I didn't know how good it was. And the idea of doing a television show the small screen, because the small screen was the small screen, really, then. It wasn't the 52-inch screen is now. So I was probably a bit snotty about it. And then I heard that it was Spielberg and Hanks. So I thought, well, I shouldn't be so stupid. Those were the words that sealed the deal for you. Tom Hanks, Steven Spielberg, fresh off Saving Private Ryan. Was that really what you needed to hear? I needed to hear it then. I'm not sure I needed to hear it quite as much on the first day of principal photography with Stephen <laughs> and Tom sitting about <laughs> three feet behind me going... 
I'm not sure if that's the right move, Dick. I don't know if I'd do it that way. It was quite an intimidating start. Stephen had broken new cinematic ground with Saving Private Ryan and the opening sequence on the beachheads that we'll all remember. We all did want to make it as exciting, as action-packed and as creatively clever as Stephen's work. Having Steven Spielberg sitting in the chair next to you, what emotions do you have? Because I'm going to be candid, Richard. It will make me crap my pants. Yeah, I didn't do that. Probably close at times. Stephen had set a couple of rules. Well, one I remember, which was should be no cranes in the film, which I think everybody promptly ignored because I think he was wrong. And I think he would probably admit he was wrong. But he was right in essence. He wanted it to be visceral and to be down there amongst them. I think there are exceptions. I think the crane is a wonderful tool. And if it's used properly, it should be invisible. And if it's invisible, it doesn't matter that you've used it because the audience is going to go, oh, like that lovely craning shot. Do I think Spielberg knows an awful lot about filmmaking? Yeah, but we don't always have to agree. He's a very polite man. Same with Hank. He wasn't in any way a bully. He was very helpful. They were very generous in their support when we were making the film. You have a lot of help making movies. Dale Dye, who was in charge of training the guys, they'd been off to boot camp for a couple of weeks before. And I think that had been an amazing bonding period for actors who they don't normally throw themselves over 10-foot fences and crawl under barbed wire in a foot of mud. So I think the fact that they did this together meant that by the time I got them, I was the outsider. I had to earn their respect as fast as I could. Your episode opens with one of the most anxiety-filled scenes in the whole series. We are up in the clouds. There's the engine roar of C-47s. Cut to a close-up of a rosary into benches of men, nervous men, praying, smoking, avoiding eye contact. Easy Company are about to jump into the Normandy countryside in the murky darkness of pre-dawn D-Day. It was these men's first ever combat jump, their first experience of war. Also, your first ever huge-scale, high-production value action work. Indeed, not only had you never done anything like this before, most of the actors had never done anything like this before. What was the learning curve like? Well, it was quite a steep one. They didn't really have to do much acting in that particular instance because we cut the wings off a real C-47 and the effects department stuck it on four enormous hydraulic rams. I sat in a chair and I was able to control the pitch and angle of that so you could shake it and vibrate it and twist it. It would have been the same effect that Flack would have had on the fuselage. So they were being thrown around. There was no acting involved. They were on wires. The cameraman was on a wire. Otherwise, he would have been out of the door. They didn't have to pretend they were in a dangerous situation. They were. And then the light goes green and it's time for Easy Company to jump. Dick Winters does it in inimitable Dick Winters style amidst the flat-filled sky. I love the way you shot that, capturing a mixture of dreaminess of the clouds and the terrible roar of war machinery that's piercing it. I remember shooting it with Damien hanging on a crane, saying, how long do I have to be up here? It's very cold and I want to use a loo. <laughs> so it's never quite as glamorous or as frightening as it is in the real world. The first soldier that Winters encounters, Private Hall from Able Company, 1st Division. Private Hall, the actor Andrew Scott, obviously has rocketed to stardom in the past couple of years as the hot priest on Fleabag. Oh, that's who it is. Is that him? 
<laughs> yeah, I'm breaking. I love. I love that I'm breaking news to you. Yes. No, I had no idea. He's wonderful. There are so many great actors in Band of Brothers, a lot of whom didn't achieve real success until five, ten years after the series aired. Did you have any sense when you were directing some of these guys? Were you like, as soon as the scene cut, you're like, oh, that kid, he's going to be big. Damien, he was the one that stood out for me as someone who had that abstract quality, which we call star quality. As Winters, such an intriguing, calm, natural leader. He's remarkable. He's almost a soothingly calm presence amidst the chaos. There's a quote of yours about how to glean great performances. You said, there's a lot of myth talked about directing actors, but the secret is to cast good ones and get good words for them to say. Great actors, you nudge them, you don't direct them, you just encourage them. Can you talk about how you nudge Damien? Talk about leaders. Damien is an old Etonian. Eton is a very, very famous English private school. We call them public schools just to be difficult and confuse our American (laughs) colleagues, but they're private schools and Eton is a very, very expensive and classy one and not easy to get into unless you're very well healed. It pumps out prime minister after prime minister, essentially. It does, quite a lot. Damien, if you meet him, he's a charming man, but he knows what he wants and he knows how to get it. So Damien would have been an officer without doubt in the war. And to say Damien was playing himself would be insulting because he wasn't. So Damien would have taken on that role. He could easily have been Winters in real life, to be honest, an English version of him. A gent whose performances stand out even in episodes like this, the first half of which is shot entirely in the dark. It's night, in an unfamiliar forest, no one knows where they are or who they're with. It's chaotic and terrifying and confusing. That's a really difficult thing to pull off in just the second episode, when we, the audience are still getting to know the characters, the faces, trying to figure out who's who. Were you at all worried about losing us, the audience? I had a big battle with Mary Richards, a remarkable producer and filmmaker, over the railway track. The railway track was expensive. Where we were shooting, there was an old railway, but there were no railway lines on it or sleepers, so we had to put those in. and They had to be all made out of plastic, fake ones, and they didn't want to do it, and Mary very kindly said I could have it. And the reason the railway track was there was exactly the question you asked me. It was to help give form to the narrative. Otherwise, at night and in forests, it just becomes a blur. I think that helps for you to know where you're going. Anything you can do to separate out one scene from another helps an audience. Into our men's first combat experience, the ambush of a horse-drawn transport, the slaughter of the horses. In the research, and I looked at lots of footage, one thing you never saw in war movies was the thousands of dead animals littered all over the landscape because cows don't know how to dodge a bullet, so they get killed. I managed to get them to make four or five dead cows. We had the dead horses, which was really part of it. There's been so many war films, and we've seen, sadly, so much death on the screens over the years. People are not used to seeing dead animals, though I think it was a way of making the audience shocked about seeing dead animals with their guts hanging out when actually almost seeing a real human would have had less effect after a while. It's a strange thing to say, but I think it worked. I want to talk a little bit, if we can, about the major battle sequence in this episode, because it's incredible. That assault on the guns at Braycourt Manor. Winters and his squad attacked in a regular field, seven acute angles in the hedgerow, the trees surrounding it, proceeding to hit the Germans from different directions. 
Can you talk to us about how you approached the task of shooting this? There was a lot of arguments about what the configuration of the guns were positioned compared to the hedgerows. I obviously spoke to everyone involved who actually was alive, who had been in my episode, and all the research that John Orloff had done, the writer. And I thought, we've got to get this right. So we went to the actual Braycourt Manor and we wandered around. And of course, it was X number of years later and it didn't look very similar. So I've always been a bit of a techno nerd and interested in new technology. And I went online and found an American satellite company and I thought I'll ring them up. So I picked up the phone and it's about sort of eight o'clock at night. And I think they're 7.30, no one will be there. The phone rings a long time, then a voice picks it up and it's the owner of the company. And he's the only guy left and he's just closing up shop. And he happened to be a fan of World War II's history. So he said, I'll switch on the bird for you. So we switched on the bird, as he called it, and we looked down and he moved the satellite around till we were focused over Braycourt Manor. And then he used, I think it would have been infrared photography to look through the surface of the earth to see where the actual trenches were dug around the back of the gun. So we knew exactly where it was. So I was able to duplicate that exactly in the film. Oh, shout out to American small industry. Absolutely. After setting up a base of fire, it's Winters himself that leads the charge over and over, taking out gun after gun. I mean, that shot with Winters charging into the unknown as bullets crackle all around him. The camera stays so tight to his face. That claustrophobia, that fear. You get a sense of what he must have been experiencing. How was it done? Was it all handheld? This was quite an interesting decision we made. We decided to have three sorts of photography, of camera work, I suppose. For scenes where people were just talking and it was calm, we would track the camera and we would be on tripods or on dollies. So it's absolutely steady. There's no movement on the frame at all. We then had a second quality, which was when the tension built up in a scene, but before the action started, we would be handheld. So you would get a little bit of movement, which made you feel uncomfortable. And then the third style was real handhold, where you were flying around in the trenches with a cameraman holding the camera. We didn't use a steady cam at all, which is a device when a cameraman is hand holding a camera and makes it look absolutely rock steady. So you can run downstairs and etc. We didn't use those tools at all, but we divided the photography into three distinct styles, which I think helped to give energy in some way. I mean, this was shot in England, which of course had just recorded its wettest year in history. Your trenches were waterlogged. You had to keep pumping them out. You tend to forget the bad days. I think making movies is a bit like having babies. Not that I've had that many personally. I've been around a few being born. But I think if you remembered the pain, you wouldn't do it again. And I think directing <laughs> movies is very similar. You only really remember the good times and the bad times and the flooded trenches. As far as I'm concerned, it was sunny every day. Amazing set. All the way through the series, that's all the same town that the art department refaced to be different countries and different towns. It was the most stupendous piece of organisation and production design. Fatigued but relieved Winters jumps onto a Sherman tank and the tanks roll right over a road filled with blood. It's an incredible scene, Richard. It was meant to be the blood from the horses. There was description that I found out about that you take six or eight cart horses and you shoot them, you get hundreds of gallons of blood. And I think that was one of the shocking things I remember seeing, because we did it on the set, we poured down tanks of blood and it was shocking. And I think that's why I got the idea for the image. 
you just rewatched your episode, Richard, for the first time in a long time. When I directed it, I turned up and did the best I could and took it seriously. If you do your job properly as a director, you just have to give everything to it. And so it's your baby. So when the film comes out and it's finished, you can't really see the wood for the trees. It's interesting seeing one's own work years and years later when it doesn't hurt as much. You can go, well, actually, that bad review I got was quite justified because I didn't get that right. We haven't had many bad reviews for Band of Brothers, and I can see why the whole series has been so successful. And it's a real amalgam of multiple talent. One thing I love from our pre-production conversation is you asked, how long ago did it come out? Is it 10 years? And just how much time has flown since you made it, Richard? Certainly has. It's really frightening. Don't waste a day, young man, would be my advice. I just can't believe it was 20 years ago. It seems implausible, but it is. There you go. What is the life lesson that you take from it all, your band of brothers experience? That really the series should be shown to all young men and women. It should be shown as an example. You know, warfare is just insane. It's old men sending young men off to die. Second World War was different. One was being attacked. Band of Brothers should be shown to school kids, and they might realise that it's not a glamorous, exciting world out there. It's where you die. Hopefully, when they watch it, what they're not taking on is thinking, wow, I'd like to have been there. I hope that's not what they take out of it. If they do, then we all failed. What I hope they take out of it is there but for the grace of God and I'm not going there and my kids aren't going there. That's what I hope. Over here, Band of Brothers is watched religiously by thousands of people every single year. It's known as a show that gets better with every viewing. Well, it's good television. I've just re-watched Friends from the beginning to the end. Richard, you can't get enough David Schwimmer, can you? No, I think he's terrific. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah, no, no. But he didn't have any very good jokes in Band of Brothers. It's the writing, the performances, the everything about it. It's just a joy to watch things done really well. Richard Longcrate, it's been a joy to speak to you as much as it is a human wonder to watch your episode. We wish you thanks and courage. It's a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for interviewing me. I really enjoyed it. What amazing insight from both blokes, Richard and John, about the incredible lengths they went to to reconstruct Easy Company's D-Day experience. And coming up on our next episode, we speak with one of Band of Brothers' most mythologised figures. You know why you hid in that ditch, Blythe? I was scared. We're all scared. You hid in that ditch because you think there's still hope. But Blythe, the only hope you have is to accept the fact that you're already dead. And the sooner you accept that, the sooner you'll be able to function as a soldier's supposed to function. Without mercy, without compassion, without remorse. All war depends upon it. The man who played Captain Spears, Mr. Matthew Settle. I was focusing on that scene for months until we shot it. It's a pinnacle element in the entire series. Every day you run it through your mind and you sit there and you say, get me out of the way, let me serve this character. You just render it. You get rid of all the fat. 
Make sure to subscribe to HBO's official Band of Brothers podcast wherever you get your podcasts and please share, rate, review, all that stuff. And a reminder, as if you needed one, that you can watch Day of Days and every magnificent episode of Band of Brothers on HBO Max right now. Until next time. Hooray! Hooray!